he saw eight and a half when he was like 16 and he thought like, wow, I can take on the Catholic church with movies. I should try that. And like, that's what spoke to him with that film. It's like, it's take on Catholicism. Right. It's like, of all the shit. things, wow, yeah. think right. about what Americans take away from it. Like, yeah. I want to be a narcissistic film director yeah. with many mistresses. Yeah, I want to cheat on my wife <laughs> yeah. and be hounded by the press. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the That's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, here today with me are... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts picks a topic for the week, and the other two hosts pick films in response to that topic, and we come on here... And we run the gauntlet with the films and, uh, you know, hash it out. It was my topic this week. It's episode 48, Roommates. And uh, feels good to be back in the gauntlet studio after our uh, week off. I hope everyone uh, enjoyed uh, the, the musical mix uh, we offered uh, in lieu of... Uh, a new episode, so uh, check that out. You know, if you haven't, if you're a gauntlet head, you know, you want to remember the classics. And uh, listening to the score and some clips, I think uh, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, no, I really liked it. I listened to it a bunch. I was Did doing you? some. Yeah, well, because I was doing some late night drives from, from Tacoma to Seattle working this film festival over the weekend. And. I was pretty worn out, and that mix kept me awake. So if people want like some energetic, cool collection of sounds and bits of dialogue, um, it's very evocative. I recommend checking that out. I liked it, too. It made me uh, want to rewatch a lot of those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like I was on the road, slowly drifting, like afraid I was going to fall asleep. And then the guitar from Finding Buck McHenry came just like <laughs> piercing through the speakers and I was just reinvigorated. <laughs> That's right. Little Ernie Banks in there at the end, you know. Anyway, like I said, the topic this week was roommates. And uh, in particular, this was inspired, of course, as I mentioned on uh, episode 47 I had Ryan in town staying with me for a while, and uh, this past week, friends of the podcast, Alex Sherman and Brendan, moved in downstairs. So I've been thinking a lot about uh, living situations and roommates, and, uh, you know, it's been a while since... uh, I had a roommate that wasn't Kyle, you know, so it's, uh, I was thinking this week just on this topic, reflecting on, you know, my college roommates and my post-college roommates and, uh, I'm ready to, I'm ready to dive in, you know, and I think you guys brought, uh, 
two wonderful, uh, wonderful examples of films about living together. I guess uh, we'll uh, we'll start, Ryan, with you. Why don't you tell us uh, about the uh, many roommates of your film? Yeah, I found a film that is a house full of roommates. And there were, there were so many to pick from. I mean, obviously, so many people um, <laughs> in history have had roommates in their lives. So it's a very rich topic for cinema, for sure. But um, I was really taken when I encountered the 1937 film Stage Door, directed by Gregory LaCava, which features a whole houseful of aspiring actresses all living together. It's like a theatrical hostel that they're all sharing, and we get a peek inside the communal spaces, but also some roommates isolated in their own rooms and those dynamics. So I guess to give just like an idea of what this movie is, Stage Door stars Katherine Hepburn as Terry Randall, who's a sort of like rich, well-to-do woman from the Midwest that is headed to New York and she wants to, it's like a little experiment for herself to see if she can become a big actress. Uh, So she moves into this theatrical boarding house of all these women who themselves are aspiring actresses and it is just It's a cacophony of voices throughout the entire film. It is constantly overlapping dialogue, nonstop quick wit. But the thing that I was really taken by while watching it is it just is infused with this, just this absolutely infectious female camaraderie uh, that permeates throughout the entire film. So even in these moments of crisis, whenever they're all coming back to the hostel, they have each other to jam with. And their jam sessions are just so colorful. They're so sharp. Doing a little bit of research, I learned that Gregory LaCava had all of these women live together in advance and preparation for the film for about two weeks. And he had a script girl who stayed with them and was just writing down the, the wisecracks these women have. And I think that that like sort of anecdotal bit of trivia really does I think accurately describe the experience of watching this film because it feels so real and it feels so different from so many other 1930s films, especially ones with woman characters. These characters are all so lived in, they have interesting dynamics, and it just all registers so effortlessly in a way that I honestly found difficult to keep up. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, if I was tossed in the middle of that room with all those ladies, I would be really overwhelmed. And You'd would be like just... the lumberjack standing there like, what's going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Seattle lumberjack boys <laughs> that just are just absolute chuds in the face of these <laughs> ladies. But I guess, like, you know, the overall, like, plot of this film is... There's this like horrible man, Mr. Powell, that is just like, I guess like a theatrical manager. He's putting on some productions and all of these different women are vying for roles in his shows, but he's just a pathetic, grotesque dude that refers to himself as a sculptor that is going to then sculpt all of these women who he just considers as clay. And he's just, you know, incredibly dismissive to them, what they're going through in their lives, and he's taking advantage of them. And Catherine Hepburn tries to, to cut through that and sort of kind of reveal his own hypocrisy and then also carve a path for her own. But there's subplots of other women trying to land the same roles, the struggles they're dealing with. Um, And yeah, it's just a lively 1930s film put out by RKO, and I had a great time watching it. And um, it is a stark contrast from the other film that we have on the gauntlet, so I'm going to let Andy take it from here. to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, in in many many ways. Yeah. Um 
Well, for me, you know, I was thinking it sure isn't easy sharing space. Uh, it takes a lot of work, actually, I think, to, to live with people uh, in close proximity. And uh, especially if you've ever had a situation where you've, you've lived with someone that wasn't or isn't a friend, you know, that, that circumstance brought you together with, for whatever reason, maybe in college, maybe in, you know, desperation, you just needed any kind of roommate whatsoever, uh, or other circumstances uh, that the fates throw your way. And so the film that I picked uh, is, I think, one of the greatest explorations of the trials and tribulations of living and potentially dying with someone that you barely know in uh, <laughs> in a in a tight space, uh, and that is the great film by John Borman from 1968, returning champion John Borman. <laughs> That's right. Uh, from 1968, Hell in the Pacific. For those who don't know, Hell in the Pacific stars. Two of the greatest and uh, most imposing actors in the history of cinema. It stars Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune as opposing, uh, I guess, naval officers in World War II who find themselves both washed up on a deserted island in the Pacific together. The film is really about then what happens when these two men discover that they are the only souls living on this otherwise uh, uh, very hostile jungle island out in the liminal space of the, the seemingly endless Pacific Ocean. And at first, uh, the men are, of course, one would gather extremely hostile to one another, you know, when they discover each other's presence. But as the film develops, as their relationship develops, the two start to gain the sense that, that you know, if they want to survive, uh, they're going to have to learn to live together and work together. It is in so many ways a, a, a as Ryan pointed out, a stark contrast to his film. In place of female camaraderie, here we have toxic masculinity, pride, machismo, cowardice, honor, all of those those uh, very sort of masculine themes that so many directors uh, have played with over the years. And uh, another aspect where it's, it's, it's quite, quite different is this is nearly a wordless film as well. Though both men have... Uh, things that they say. Uh, none of Mifune's dialogue is translated. Lee Marvin's character obviously doesn't speak Japanese, and Borman made the choice not to subtitle any of Mifune's dialogue. And beyond that, you know, Borman said that that his inspiration for this particular film, for making this film, is that he was a great admirer of the silent cinema and wanted to make a silent film. Obviously, it's 1968, so his mindset was none of the dialogue that you hear, none of the words that either of these men say is going to be instrumental to pushing the narrative along. All of that is going to come through the images, through their actions. It is, I think, 
a beautiful film, beautifully shot film by Conrad Hall. Uh, I think it's a funny film, it's a touching film, and it's a great exploration into uh, into the the depths of you know. I would say perhaps the male soul, but I would also just simply say the human soul. The roommate soul. Yeah, the roommate <laughs> soul, you know. Uh, and again, it's a great film, I think, for anyone that has ever encountered difficulties in, uh, in uh, finding room for, for someone next to you. So that's the film that I chose, Hell in the Pacific. Thank you, Andy. Uh, I do want to just tease out, you know, some more, uh, I guess, surface level uh, differences between the films that I find interesting. Helen the Pacific, of course, is a uh, cinemascope widescreen Conrad Hall 239 to 1. And of course, uh, Stage Door in the classic Academy ratio and uh, shot by uh, Robert de Grasse, who is a uh, for torn airheads, you'll know him, you know. Uh, he did a lot of the RKO, you know, horror and noir stuff after this film, which uh, doesn't have stark lighting, but has great depth and richness to mm -hmm. uh, the way that the boarding house is shot in this film. It oh, is... Yeah. Framing in depth. Yeah, it's just a, a wonderful, yeah. Both films have just like, wonderful cinematography and totally two different styles, right? Borman yeah. using so much landscape and negative space and abstraction as he tends to, uh, and, you know, getting really close to these tough guys' faces. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of obstruction, too, you know? I was I was really, this time around, re-watching it, um, really impressed with, with how many shots are of these men at times seemingly entwined by all the the vines of the the jungle on this island and and uh you know it adds to the sense of of claustrophobia you know because it's interesting that uh again like the sort of like contrast between the, the 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 two films is that there's so many fucking people in that boarding house oh my like God. so many everybody is just on top of each other all the time you know the frame is just filled with life and, and comings and, and goings and oh my yeah, god yeah <laughs> and yet it it doesn't and perhaps because of like the warmth of the characters and their 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 friendship you know uh it never it never feels like cramped to me on a certain level and yet sure it's like overstuffed yeah you know? and yet in like hell in the pacific it's just two men and and just surrounded by emptiness and yet i at all times felt so uh uneasy i felt like there was somebody just like leaning over my shoulder at every moment i felt hard pressed for space you know Wow. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of it that way, but I think that's really perceptive because the women are all so comfortable being around each other. So even when it is like a tight space, it's very relaxed and they all feel at ease. And the size and scale of that island still feels way too small for both of those dudes oh, yeah. who just like absolutely cannot stand being next to each other. And I think just like an Another interesting, like, technical comparison between the two films, like, both so visually, as you pointed out, Marsh, but also, obviously, Stage Door, it's from 1937, sounds like a 30s movie, sounds like shit, sounds fine, you can understand what everybody's saying, but it's a 30s movie, but the sound design 
in Hell in the Pacific, even for 1968, feels unbelievably advanced. It is like such a dense sound. I feel like I could hear every drop on every leaf. I was hearing the landscape more than I was hearing these men. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that Borman is constantly changing our focus through sound and already like sometimes in contrast with the images I thought was like also contributing to that claustrophobic effect because you were constantly both looking over your shoulder looking off screen wondering where some of these noises were coming from and I think too it's like the the urban rural divide you know the women in the boarding house they live in New York New York you know like the busiest place in the world in 1937 and so this boarding house however cramped is home and less cramped than the rest of new york city you know Mm -hmm. so like there's that element where there's so much going on that you don't even notice it and then you've got the two guys on the island who hear every footstep and every breath and every drink of water, you know? Like, every drop of piss. Yeah, everything's <laughs> so much more sensitive. It's just, you know, I wouldn't say it's quiet. There's a jungle and an ocean. But especially, too, because, you know, for a lot of the film, they are, are thinking about killing each other. So there's, like, the paranoia of, of sound, uh, in all that, whereas, yeah, stage door, you know, hey, it's New York, you know, it's just loud. Absolutely. And for me, like, that really speaks to, I think, you know, a, if, like, why I, I chose the film that I did for the topic. You know, I was I was thinking about those moments when I have shared space with someone that uh, I, I wasn't super comfortable with or we just weren't extremely warm with one another and how you hear all the little noises that they're making in the house, you know, or, or even just someone that you, you do live with and you, you care about and maybe they've irritated you. And, and for whatever reason, you know, if they, if they creak a floorboard, you know, it sounds like, uh, somebody just took a 20 pound sludge to the hardwood, right? I mean, you are just, you are on edge and, and, and you are, you are noticing their presence in a way that, that, uh, really, you know, amplifies every little thing that they do, you know? And, and yeah, you, 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 you pointed it out like the, the living in New York and it being this like busy place. There's even in stage door, that funny gag where, uh, Catherine Hepburn, who hasn't lived in the big city at a certain point, you know, she's trying to, to go to sleep and, and I guess it's like stuffy in the room or something. And her roommate's like, well, let me open the window. And they have the hilarious gag where, you know, when she opens the window, it's just, it sounds as if like the, the streets of New York are just trying to claw their way in, you know, like it's <laughs> there's so, a gigantic neon sign yeah, that has been previously shaded. Yeah. It's like the Kenny Rogers roaster yep. sign from uh, Seinfeld, you know, yeah. it's, it's that's hilarious. one of those such is such a funny like cinematic gag where all I can think is like God damn those are some incredible windows like for the the jump in the uh, amount of volume to come through the windows like yeah. just opening it like man those things are probably like double pane triple pane windows like this really impressive yeah <laughs> and on the other hand you know in Hell in the Pacific we get shots from like God's perspective you know like where they are 
just little specks, you know, these little islands, right? And there's yeah. a lot of, like, distance as well, uh, which we obviously don't get in stage door. We're, like, trapped inside these sets in New York City, you know? So, uh, yeah, they really do have such different vibes. But I one thing that they have in common that I find very interesting is that they are both survival films and they're both films Mm. that feature starvation and i think that's an interesting connection because of course stage door is a depression era film and these women uh many of them who have been out of work for a, a year or more are really struggling financially and i mean really struggling financially so uh there's that that aspect i didn't you know expect to have in common with these two films like prominently featuring hunger um and you know then it just made me think like wow you know food is always a very uh, can be a sensitive topic amongst roommates oh you know? absolutely <laughs> yeah i mean there yeah. were so many moments in hell in the pacific specifically that reminded me of that temptation of like opening the fridge and seeing your roommate's pad tie and being like, ooh, like I got, maybe if I take a bite, they won't know, you know? And oh, yeah. there's so much of that, like of them just stealing each other's fish. I like when Lee Marvin uh, fashions a rope to lower his canteen down into like the water basin that Mifune has set up while he's sleeping. Oh yeah. my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, that's, again, part of the reason why I picked the movie, because I'm just, you know, uh, when I think of roommates, you know, those are little things that you think of, like, don't touch my shit. Did you touch my shit? You know, keep your hands off my that's stuff. That's my log. Right, yeah, and there's so much of that in Hell in the Pacific. I mean, the vast majority of the film is is just that, a battle for 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 shit, for space, for territory, for stuff, you know? And yes, in the extreme, it's, it is, I need food to survive. I need to fucking drink water. I'm going to die. But it's also little odd things as well. You know, it's just that it's just this idea of possession and, and a sense of, of violation. And, and the interesting thing being too, in the case of hell in the Pacific, that, you know, no one owns that island. They don't own that space, you know? And yet at a certain point, they they both try desperately to carve out their section of this, this forsaken little island out in the middle of nowhere. Like they still have that, at least initially, that 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 attempt to to claim ownership of 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 things. And that resonates with Stage Door very much because when Terry, Catherine Hepburn, moves in, uh, she's roomed with Jean Maitland as played by Ginger Rogers. And obviously, Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers are two different vibes. And so obviously there's a there's a clash there immediately. And a lot of the wisecracks that Gene makes are about possessions. And especially because, you know, unbeknownst to everyone, no one knows that Hepburn is, uh, you know, the daughter of the Wheat King of the Midwest. You the know? Wheat King, and, yeah. we, and we don't <laughs> either. But, uh, she, you know, she's... Jean is very cynical. She's a city slicker, you know? She is fast-talking 
talking. She is just street smart. Yeah, she's street smart, you know, and uh, she's calling her out on all this stuff. But it's, you know, it's interesting then later, Andy, to, you know, what you were speaking on. They really bond when uh, Terry catches Jean wearing her ermine coat. Uh, And then Catherine Hepburn's like, yeah, just wear it. I don't care. And, And Jean at that moment is like very taken by that gesture and also because she's kind of like a shallow materialist you know or whatever but like uh it is that moment when they actually do start to become friends is like this letting go of this possession oh you like that jacket no you just have it you're my roommate Mm -hmm. you know yeah and that echoes uh you know what what lee marvin at a certain point like shouts at at uh, Tashira Mifune in Hell in the Pacific, you know, as you mentioned, the the log, you know, and when Lee Marvin discovers Mifune's trying to use his his log, I guess his, like, sleeping log, whatever he leans on, to build a raft. And, and at a certain point, Lee Marvin's like, take it. You want the damn log? Take it, but don't sneak around. Just take the damn thing or ask me for it or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. Because he guess, just, like, wakes up and sees him, like, fashioning a raft. Yeah, and, and he, and he, he like... Yeah, and he notices the depression in the sand next to him where, like, I think there used to be a huge-ass log right here, right? You know, where the hell my log go? But yeah, it's that same sense of letting go, right? You know, the, the letting go that that starts yeah. to create the bond. You got to create the unit, you know. Not you got to be one and together, not just two guys. <laughs> I will say Lee Marvin's a bit of a hypocrite in that moment. I I, yeah. I want to make sure we characterize this guy correctly. I like was <laughs> I could not believe how much of a dick that Lee Marvin was like throughout the entire first chunk of the movie. It's I mean like Mifune is like rationally. Um, like uncomfortable with Lee Marvin and distrustful, you know, especially since Lee Marvin is like ferociously rude. <laughs> like when he arrives on the island, like he's trying to steal everything. He's at one point he pisses on Toshira Mifune. Oh, yeah. I was like expecting, like thinking about, you know, roommates terrorizing each other. I was expecting Lee Marvin to <laughs> fashion stink bombs out of something in the woods, you know, but he is like unbelievable to Toshiro for it's most a, of the Ryan, first it's chunk. It's a wartime scenario. Yeah. No, of course I get it, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, like, it's extreme. But, but I think even in that there, there is some complexity because it also happens early on that at a certain point, Lee Marvin does finally just go up to him and hold out his canteen and say, can you just give me some goddamn water? You know, Mifune is lording over the only fresh water. And he does approach him at a certain point. And obviously there's a language barrier, but a man holding out an empty canteen to another man who has, you know, a bucket full of water or something like that, a basin full of water you know, he is trying to be at a certain point irrational, but but that's the that's the 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 constant roller coaster of emotions that that both of these desperate men find themselves on. You know, at times loosening up, and then at times tightening back up again, and and just when we think they have finally te- torn down all the the barriers between them, uh, uh, another seems to suddenly pop up. You know? It's true. And I mean, I think, Ryan, maybe it's worth thinking about as well that uh, Americans are rude. 
you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, sure. I understood <laughs> yeah, why yeah, yeah. he was characterized this way. I just, you know, when we were, like, leading with Lee Marvin being, like, a rational, like, just just ask me. I'm like, listen, <laughs> Lee Marvin wasn't asking moment. for anything. Yeah, in yeah, that no, moment. Of course, he grows, he grows, as roommates grow together. Yeah, which comes later in the film. Yeah, for sure. It is funny that both films, though, like, straight out the gate involve roommate theft, which I thought was funny and, like, a good sign that we had found two good films to like represent the the theme of roommates because obviously yeah there's the theft of water trying to get the water and then in stage door like right away someone just comes barging down the stairs complaining that um another woman in the hostel like my roommate stole my uh her stockings Mm -hmm. and it's like already that bickering has developed between both sets of roommates in both films i mean it was really funny watching them back to back because i watched hell in the pacific first and i walked away thinking like this is it. This is the most dialogue I want in a film. I love this. Like, And then to then jump into stage door, I was like, oh, dear God, like, what have I gotten myself into? Because it is just nonstop dialogue. Hello, Hank. Hello. 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 Look what Mother sent me from Louisiana. What are they? The cons. The cons? Hmm, let's open one. Maybe there's a check in it. Oh, well, I had a day, but I guess I can get out of it. Sure, I'll get a girl. Where is she? Okay, who? Oh. Not you. Come on, take them off. Are you speaking to me? You heard what I said. Take off those stockings or I will and take a little... What do you mean? With a, come on, get them but off. But they're my stockings. They are not. If you think I'm going to give up my lunch to buy you stockings... Well, you owe me a pair anyway. Oh, Mrs. Orcutt, Linda's doing a strip tease. You can get a bigger crowd on the street. Why don't you split them? Stocking a piece. From now on, you wear your own stockings or go bare-legged. The places you go, it doesn't make any difference anyway. Oh, What's the trouble? Are you running a theatrical boarding house or a gymnasium? I also will point out that I made the mistake. I found out all this afterwards, but while Molly and I were watching Hell in the Pacific, and at one point, Tashira Mifune like has quite a bit to say, more than just a line. I was just curious. I'm like, does this have subs? And I turned it on, and it does. And Mifune is translated in the subs. Oh wow! And then I later read that it was presented without subs on purpose. Um, but honestly, I, I liked the movie knowing what he was saying. He says some nice things. Like, nothing remarkable, and it doesn't affect anything in terms of the narrative. Um, but, you know, like, I, I joked with Marsh. I've read a lot of Cormac McCarthy. I'm used to the, like, oh, it's untranslated to make you feel alienated. And I gotta say, I I generally just prefer knowing what they're saying. Sure. So it, it was nice knowing what he was saying because... It, it gave a little bit more perspective, too, on just, like, his emotional reactions to um, Lee Marvin, especially since, like, Mifune. It's very emotional, but it also, his voice is so intense, so you catch a little more subtlety if you know the words that he's saying. Um, but yeah, he just calls him, like, a dumb Yankee and things like that. It's very funny. He's, like, so perplexed. He calls him Whitebeard at one point, because I took Ryan's cue, and I was like, hey, I've seen this movie several times. I'm going to put the subs on. So, uh <laughs> It was interesting, yeah. Again, nothing profound, but it did, I think, add a little depth to it. Well, Borman, uh, actually, I don't know if you guys uh, discovered this, but I, I watched an interview with him where he was talking about his strategy for writing the film and how he uh, he had the film written. He wasn't one of the writers, but he conceived of it you know, in this way, like that was his plan from the get-go, was to say, like, I, you know, yeah, I want it to be alienating. I want... 
you know, English audiences, English speaking audiences to, to take one thing from it and Japanese audiences to take another, because on a certain level, it was almost a Japanese co-production. Yeah. He had Japanese crew and he invited a Japanese writer to work on the script. So he said he had three offices, you know, three rooms and he put the, the, uh, you know, English speaking writer in one room and he put the Japanese writer in a different room and then he would explain the scene to each of them and then send them off to both write the scene and then he would take Interesting. what each of them wrote Dude, that's so good and then you know slap them together pull them together and stuff like that now it, he said it created also some difficulties you know because he basically had at a certain point like competing writers and he said the japanese writer particularly wrote Mifune's character much more broad and almost buffoonish was the word he used, you know, that he was kind of like a clown. And this created a problem because Borman said when they got on the set, uh, Mifune was playing it that way. And he was trying to tell Mifune like, no, 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 no. Like you're not a clown. You know, your guy has to be like serious and, and dramatic. I think he said that the writer had gotten in Mifune's ear and Mifune agreed with the Japanese writer. And he, cause Mifune was used to playing, you know, things a certain way, you know, it's one of the reasons for people who, you know, just don't really know much about Mifune's career outside of his Japanese cinema. You know, one of the biggest barriers for Mifune in becoming an international star was he just, he could not learn English for the life of him. And, you know, like, let's be honest, it's hard to learn a foreign language. And the older you get, the harder it gets. And by the time he was a huge star, you know, I guess it was just very difficult for him to learn English. So he always needed a translator. And Borman told this hilarious story where when he was uh, directing Mifune and telling him, like, from day one, like, you're playing this all wrong, uh, the, the translator, the Japanese guy was like, I can't tell him that. Like, I, I, I can't do it. Like, you can't, you can't let me talk to Mufuni like that because for the Japanese crew, you know, like to be, to be criticized in such a way would, you know, you'd lose face and the translator would just be like shaking and then he would tell it to Mufune and Mufune would scream at his translator <laughs> and then look at Borman and smile you know, and the poor Japanese translator is like, he's taking it all out on me. Like you can't, you know, he respects you, but like he's killing the messenger here. <laughs> and at a certain point, Borman said, I, I finally like laid into the translator and the translator's like, I, I, my life isn't worth telling him this, like, this is too much. And, and he said the Japanese translator got down on his knees and was like praying as he was delivering the bad news to Mifune. And he said Mifune hauled off and slapped the, the translator across the face and then just turned and looked at Borman and was like, okay, let's do it, you know, whatever. I mean, Borman was like, it was basically like what we were going through in the movie, you know, language barriers creating creating drama, creating tension, creating struggle. And, and Borman did point out that this is the only film in his career where he came in uh, over time, and and it was a big issue for him, you know. Just I mean, shooting on location in the middle of the Pacific Ocean for real. Oh yeah, I was thinking about that a lot. This watch, just going like, what a nightmare shoot this must have been for ev so many reasons. Oh you God, know? yeah. I mean, at least it was just the two actors, you yeah. know. That certainly helps. It is amazing, though, just you mentioning the the process of, like, putting them in different rooms for the writing. That's then, like, something these films have in common, is that, like, the reality of these films 
was partially a result of like high concept script writing practices, you know, mm -hmm. like having the script girl like actually live with these women and then here having the, the actual language barrier made explicit through the actual writing process. I think that that's the one of the main sources of power in both films. So it's interesting that they both have an unconventional approach to actually script writing this. Yeah, and on top of that, one of the co-writers of Stage Door uh, was Maury Riskind, who co-wrote all the classic Marx Brothers movies. So, like, you have that energy on top of improvised ad-lib dialogue, like pre-rehearsed Mike Lee-styled, you know, dialogue or whatever. Oh like, my God, yeah. I mean, all that, and then you bring in, yeah, a Marx Brothers guy to... To spice it up, to I punch mean, it up even more. I mean, it yeah. is it is really it is really radical in its overlapping sound. You know, I think obviously Hawks gets a lot of credit, uh, and he certainly should. But like, it was a, a contemporary trend, you know, among several people. And Lakava here is doing every bit as daring overlapping uh, as any film of the 30s with the way some of these scenes are staged and blocked and telephones are ringing and being answered and conversations are being carried on like in an Altman-esque fashion. You oh know? my like, God, yeah. You find out so much about everyone in the movie because there's just so much constantly going on, you know? Dates and and difficulties with auditions and issues with family. You know, you really you really get to know everyone because everyone's contributing at all times. I mean, I was trying desperately to write down some of my favorite lines, I know, and I yeah. I gave up at a certain point. I was like, I just cannot, it's I cannot, right? I can't, I cannot. I need a stenographer here. I need somebody writing in shorthand to keep track of it all. Yeah, it would just be helpful to even just have the script pulled up right now in order to even make sense of it. Because I wrote down some lines, too, and even looking at them out of context, I, I had no time to contextualize them for my notes, you know? I see a line I wrote down that I think we could apply to both movies in many ways as well, and I think this ties into the roommate's theme. Uh, let me give it a voice here. He wasn't looking for an act. He was putting one on. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I was thinking, and this is made explicit in, in Stage Door because it's about actresses. So there's a lot about, you know, the performativity of life. We're all acting. The world's a stage. We're all putting on fronts, you know. And because I watched Stage Door first, then I was thinking about that during Hell in mm. the Pacific. And I think we see that process uh, play out there as well of these soldiers who then become men, who become individuals, who then become, you know, friends, right? And we see those uh, stages over time. Like That's interesting because, like, even Lee Marvin initially, like, he's not trying to connect in any meaningful human way with Mifune. He's playing soldier. You know, he's stomping around and behaving the way he thinks he should and the way he's been trained to mm -hmm. handle this type of situation. Yeah. In Borman's words, he said uh, at first they, you know, they decided to fight out the war in miniature, still wearing their uniforms. And those uniforms, yeah. as the film goes on, become more and more tattered. And, and at a certain point, that does make them both more primitive. But it's like once they've been kind of stripped of all those, I mean, he used the word emblems, right? But once they've been stripped of those 
those, you know, those uniforms, which are part of your costume, right? You know, you, you, when you're playing soldier, what's underneath it at a certain point, just two humans, just two scraggly, naked, very physically imposing, uh, men, you know, without flags on their shoulders or their caps. Right. Um, and the film will again, sort of come back to that idea, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a stripping of that, that, performative layer you're talking about that eventually gives them the ability to to come together and in stage door they're also kind of playing with those ideas you know but in a weird way it's kind of in reverse for for Catherine Hepburn's character yeah because she's very raw at first she's very I'm gonna say whatever the fuck is on my mind and she makes a big point of that and you know her arc as a character is really like learning to become an actress, you know, what does it take? Because at first, I think it's pretty early on. She's like, how hard can it be? Acting is just common sense. It's like, well, not exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) And that's the, uh, like, I, I guess you could also divide the, you know, the difference between her and, and Ginger Rogers as the classic. Yeah. It's, it's brains versus heart or intellect versus street smarts. Right. Uh, and we get that because everyone else is, yeah, they're, they're seasoned actress, actresses. And Catherine Hepburn, she studied it. She knows Shakespeare. But, right, she's just starting out. And then we see her journey is, yeah, so much different than everyone else's journey, obviously. Yeah, because in a way, she's sort of even play acting as an unsuccessful actress initially. I mean, when we, she does get a chance to act, she is bad at it. Like, she's very wooden. That's something that, like, comes yeah. up later in the film. But originally, like, her role in this is she's, like, moving in with them, and she even has no conception of, like, what they're living through and just the cost of it because she's so wealthy. When she first asks, you know, how much is it to stay here? And they say $13. And she's like, wow, $13? I mean, what, do you have like a weekly rate to like make that any easier? And she's like, no, that is the weekly rate. So even then, Catherine Hepburn's coming into the space thinking like, oh, I guess it's sort of reasonable to charge $13 a day, which is just like completely out of the question for any of the other women living here. And then later when she's speaking with her father and eventually these funds are are cut off because her father mentions if you're just going to keep pursuing this if you want to be this unsuccessful actress like living with all of these people like i'm you're gonna have to make it on your own you're gonna have to fend for yourself you can't live in the comfort of of my wheat king funds um sponsoring this whole enterprise so what initially at first is her arriving and acting as though she is one of them, it then eventually shifts when those funds are cut off and that she does actually have to become one of them and learn to fight for herself in the way that they do. But then does she really, though? Because no. <laughs> the Wheat King is pulling the strings all right. the time. The rich guy <laughs> is moving the whole damn plot behind the scenes. Yeah. I got very... I, I kept thinking of the great pulp song, Common People, while I was watching... Her particularly in this situation. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Right. She's, yeah, she's definitely slumming it, you know, Jane Byrne moving into Cabrini Green, you Mm -hmm. know, here we are again or before or whatever. Yeah. Which in and of itself is a performance. Yes. Right. She's trying to perform. Aspiring actress. Exactly. Becoming actress. (laughs) But that's not the case for those other women. Let me tell you, they are. 
they are really aspiring and they are really trying. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should probably even just mention some of the other actresses that are in this film because, you know, you brought up Ginger Rogers. There's also Gail Patrick's in it. Lucille Ball, an extremely early role for her. Um, oh, and Ann Miller, who is, I found out, was only 14 when she was in this movie. She lied about her age. God, wow. And I guess that's just one of those things, too, that's just like, I don't know if it's silly to say, just like amazing about cinema and thinking like, Ann Miller and Mulholland Drive, you know, in the year 2000, and then watching this film from 37 and being like, this is the same person. Like, this is an archive of, like, a human being, you know? I don't know. That, like, struck me for some reason, seeing a young Ann Miller, because I'm less familiar with her, her work, you know? Yeah, and then on the flip side, you know, in Hell in the Pacific, you have Lee Marvin, who, like, seemingly, like looked like he was 72, like, for his entire career, you know? Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ, when he died, and what, he was only in, like, his... He was, like, 60. Yeah, he was, like, 60, and he looked 80, you know, when he died, Crazy. so... Well, uh, you know, he uh, he had a hard life. I mean, yeah, I guess, He shows you know, up very hard We life. didn't mention this, but, you know, for, for those who do not know, Lee Marvin, of course... Uh, served in World War II in the Marines, uh, also lied about his age, speaking of, uh, and had a very harrowing experience uh, in many ways. Saw a lot of bloodshed, saw a lot of a lot of action. Uh, and, and specifically in the in Pacific the, In the Pacific, yeah. specifically. And Mifune also uh, served in the war. I'm not sure uh, to what capacity. It's, a, it's an interesting slash funny story, but uh, he <laughs> was... He was uh, basically a quartermaster with the Japanese Air Force, uh, and yet uh, he staged photographs of himself, like uh, like leaning against a plane. So part of his mythology was that he was a a kamikaze fighter that didn't get called <laughs> to, to, to action, uh, but in reality he was the quartermaster. That apparently, I guess, from what I understand, uh, I'd, I'd read this in in a, the great joint. There's a really great joint biography of Mifune and Kurosawa called The Emperor and the Wolf. And they talked about this at length in there, but there was a detail that they didn't talk about that, that Borman shared. Um, Mifune's job, one of his principal jobs, the quartermaster, was to serve sake to the kamikaze pilots right before they like took off. So his job was basically to send still harrowing as fuck. Oh yeah. Yeah. But there was a, you know, a, 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 an embarrassing claim of stolen valor at a certain Mm. point, which I think again, like for who Mifune is like adds to, to his own sort of persona. But, but yeah, both were very much, um, you know, face to face with the realities, the, the harsh realities of what, you know, what this film is is uh, depicting. And actually, Catherine Hepburn is too. <laughs> because the, the actual monologue she gives when she's in the theatrical show in Stage Door, those lines were taken from a show Catherine Hepburn had done a few years earlier, infamously, where she was mocked for being very wooden. The little bit of trivia is that Dorothy Parker said she ran the full gamut of emotions from A to B. Um, <laughs> so, so there's like a bit of actor as auteur, like sneaking that into this film to show like I can do it wooden, but then I can also do it like a real performer. Well, sure. There's even like that joke with Ginger Rogers, you know, because she's a a struggling wannabe dancer. Yeah, yeah and there's like a scene where she's dancing and like, 
if this is Ginger Rogers we're talking about here, and she is totally, yeah. you know, she's got it at like a four when you know at any point she can kick that up to an 11. You know, it's another great, great layer there. And especially for audiences of the time to be like, lol, you know, we know. It's like, um, it's like the a, another Pacific film, but it's like the joke of David Bowie singing in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And he specifically was like, I got to sing bad. I can't sing like David Bowie, right? Like, yeah, or like we were talking about when Clint couldn't get on the horse in Unforgiven. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're yeah. Calling, back, calling back to the roles. You yeah. know? It is always really funny watching good actors and actresses act poorly on purpose, you know, like within yeah. a film. Like it is, it was amusing when Catherine Hepburn, because she's so good in the movie and when she does start doing her monologue and it's like, at first, I was confused, thinking, like, oh, is her, like, what is going on here? Is this, like, bad direction? Or, you know, is this supposed to be that she's, like, a bad actress in the scene? Um, and it is odd watching someone as talented as Katherine Hepburn is in this movie, <laughs> you know, pretend to be a performer who can't do it. Right. I mean, and she was, you know, at the time, box office poison. And this film uh, resurrected her career after, you know, some of those quote unquote bad performances or whatever. I also want to shout out uh, my favorite character in Stage Door is Eve Arden as the woman who has a cat draped on her at oh all God. times. Uh, and she is a, a very, she had like a 60 year career. You guys have probably seen her in a million things. Um, and she's hilarious. I didn't even get her character's name, but she's in every like lounge scene. And she has a cat on her, on her neck, like pretty much the whole time. Well, I don't like to gossip, but that new gal seems to have an awful crush on Shakespeare. I wouldn't be surprised if they got married. Oh, you're fooling. Shakespeare's dead. No. Well, if he's the same one that wrote Hamlet, he is. Never heard of it. Well, certainly you must have heard of Hamlet. Well, I meet so many people. Yeah, she's almost wearing it like a scarf, which yeah. is so funny because <laughs> there's lots of jokes in the movie just about woman wearing animals as yep. clothing you know there's so many people that have jackets where the the way it's tied is just little dangling paws and feet you know if it's like a scarf coat or something like that and yeah that cat like, you know i i was thinking like man i'd love to do that with with my cat but my cat's not stretchy like that cat is to be <laughs> able not to a actually train cat to just <laughs> yeah. like go limp on a human being for hours on end <laughs> i was like desperate to know the cat's name too so it was really nice when it like is later revealed that the cat's name is Henry. That was like the big like we were cheering in that moment. You know, it's like, ah, yes, there you go. Good. Good job, Henry. Good boy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I really liked the uh, I forgot what the actress's name was, but there's also the 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 like older generation there yes. as well. And there's one character who will become quite pivotal on a certain level to Catherine Hepburn's development, or at least as she would like to, to think, but she's the, the woman who plays the, the acting coach, yeah, you know, and yeah. And she was for me, one of my, one of my favorite characters in the movie. It's the chair Bernhardt sat in when she was rehearsing Queen Elizabeth over here. I was in the company. Oh, you were an actor? Mrs. Ocas played with all the stars. She supported me in lots of my shows, haven't you, dear? That's Bernhardt's picture, isn't it? Mm. They say she was wonderful. Oh, she was very good, very good in some things. As a matter of fact, although it isn't generally known, Bernhardt and I had the same coach. Oh, I think coaching's a waste of time. After all, acting's only common sense. But that's all a good coach implies, this common sense. 
If I don't get the right play soon, I may do a little coaching myself. It was funny. I was trying to place who that was because she's so recognizable in a certain sense where if you've seen this actress in at least one movie, even if you can't remember what it is, you're like, I have seen this woman before. Like yes. she is unmistakable, you know? And it was through a bit of research that I was like, she's the one, she's one of the women in rope. I, mm -hmm. I think it's her son that's killed. So yeah, she's very memorable in that. But yeah, I loved her in this. She's draped in these like unbelievable beads that oh, almost yeah. feel like they're going to be scraping the floor that the necklaces are so long. Yeah, big, big, I was picking up like big, and again, talking about the Marx Brothers, big Margaret Dumont vibes, yes. you know? That's exactly what she's got. Yeah, she she tries to carry herself like the, the grand dame of the group, but she's kind of a joke, you know? Yeah, she's, always mm -hmm. like calling back to like early 1900s theater that no one gives a shit about. Yeah. <laughs> Shows everyone Sarah Bernhardt's chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite moments in Stage Door and especially in its relationship to Hell in the Pacific is when Catherine Hepburn does like move in with her roommate. And we, we talked a little bit about the sound gag and the bright lights that are coming in through the window. And Catherine Hepburn puts on this big, like, mask uh, for her eyes um, to block out the, the, the light from the flashing neon outdoors. But she's in the mood to chat when Ginger Rogers' Jean is, you know, ready to just turn in for the night. Do you go to sleep right away? Sure. What do you go to bed for? Well, I thought we might talk. I've had enough talk for one evening. I suppose you're wondering why I'm living here. Maybe I am. Why don't you sell some of those clothes and live in a decent place? Isn't this a decent place? No. Besides, I've always longed to live in an atmosphere like this. I bet you haven't seen atmosphere. Wait till about 5 o'clock in the morning when those garbage trucks start around. <laughs> and Catherine Hepburn makes mention that we're going to share the same room. Why not share our troubles? You know, and I think that that's a shift that eventually happens in Hell on the Pacific, and it takes a lot longer, obviously, in Hell on in the Pacific for that to happen. When they decide, okay, we should be sharing our troubles here. We are stuck on an island, and they need to like eventually learn to work together to construct a raft as a pair, as opposed to just them stealing each other's logs in order to get that done. But it was, yeah, I mean, that the sharing the troubles thing is so integral to the design of Stage Door and its representation of just friends hanging out and helping each other out. Uh, when I was watching it with Molly, she kept bringing up the fact that the film made her so nostalgic for college because it was she lived with four other women. And she said it was like, this is like just what it felt like <laughs> coming home every day and just like unloading, just like sharing our troubles, helping each other out, cooking a big meal, you know. And I, I, and I think that so much of this film has that because they do all on their like separate journeys encounter all of these like frustrating things. But when they are returned to that haven of the, the theatrical hostel, um, those tensions tend to dissipate a little bit as they just kind of jab at each other and then you know, find some, some peace. Yeah. Because we do see that throughout the film that these women do share the same troubles, you know, as you pointed out, Marsh, I mean, this is a, a, and at a certain point it really does hit you. This is still a film made in the great depression and, and those troubles are there as well for the audience, you know? And I think that the film reaches 
a, a great like kind of humanistic level like in those moments when when everyone is sort of like yeah the struggle is real for everyone except for you know a few people in the film right but but those people are are the outsiders you know those people are the ones that we are in that very you know simplistic way identifying with you know they're they're aliens to us uh you know miss randall is from a totally different world than everybody watching this movie from us watching this movie from the women inside this film same thing with a guy like you know mr powell right these are people that are foreign to us and the film does deal with both of them in in a in a in a different way you know where where one sort of learns and one doesn't really learn through those experiences. One learns to share the troubles, to to perhaps even empathize, and the other one doesn't, right? But that that sense again of, yeah, of of sharing hardship. You know, there's the there's the one character who at a certain point gets a letter from home. And I can't remember which of the women it is, but she gets a letter from home and, and the girls are like, ah, what's up? Share it, you know? And and she just gives them the, the like the shortest version of it possible. And everyone's kind of like, yep, I can relate. You know, I think it like climaxes with her being like, yeah, my brother punched a railroad detective and uh, mom asked for, you know, $20 or something like that. And everyone's like, oh yeah, of course. You know, like those are the experiences they yeah. all <laughs> would understand, you know? And uh, I mean, I could see how, something like this as you put it Ryan like it's 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 incredibly uplifting in that sense of of shared shared difficulty and and trauma you know especially since in a typical hollywood film from the time i feel like a lot of these troubles would sort of remain subtext and so many of them become explicit in the film especially through the character of k oh, yeah. who at one point as we mentioned you said this film deals in elements of even starvation she is aspiring to be in this role that she feels is almost designed for her and based off her own experience and she had a bit of success in the past but she is like in a dry period of you know, barely being able to pay some of her, just like the back pay to stay in this hostel. And she tries to have a meeting with Mr. Powell, this like, you know, sort of overlord of the theatrical world for the, for these women. And her starvation is made explicit when she is denied entry into his office after she arrives so hopeful and had worked up all of that energy for this audition. And she's told, ah, he's not seen anybody this week. Like you're going to have to come back next week. The idea of waiting any longer not knowing whether she'll have any kind of income coming in she passes out both from fear and literal starvation mm -hmm. i mean how often do you see in a hollywood film a, a character passing out from starvation her whole subplot goes so fucking hard dude oh it's it's heartbreaking <laughs> yeah. yeah and we should probably get into mr powell a little bit yeah. more well, you I know because he too. is <laughs> he's well that's where i was going he is of course played by one of the all-time great hollywood heels on on and off screen, Adolf Menju, who is just one of the most unlikable presences in classic Hollywood and used to such great effect here because he is, you know, Harvey Weinstein, oh, you yes. know, like big Weinstein. That's vibes. like what he's doing in this film. And he is, you know, he's got his various relationships at various stages at the time with several of the women at the boarding house because he's 
allegedly, you know, this big shot producer. Uh, and we even do, I was going to say earlier, we get a stark contrast, you know, talking about uh, the sort of like homeliness and camaraderie of everything. And then we go to his high rise, oh, yeah. you know, which is oh like talk God, about like yeah. a foreign space that just crashes into this film. And it is this, you know, Art Deco RKO apartments, you know, <laughs> yeah. like we were in the boarding house and now here we are on the RKO design, you know, very modern, very sleek, very white, very white up in the sky, you know, and he in these moments, you know, we see him comically wooing multiple people. Actually, this is a great gag, right? Because Powell has been recently dating Linda and then he's dating Gene. And before Gene goes to his high rise, Linda's like, he's going to give you champagne. He's going to, you know, she gives she gives her the lowdown. And then we see that lowdown play out comically. And then we see it again with Catherine Hepburn. So like we hear it and then we see him, his methods, you know, twice. That's his performance. Exactly. And his performance also includes lying about having a family. (laughs) And he has these two photos on, uh, you know, like a piano or something in his apartment. And it's, you know, a a wife and a son. Uh, And he gives these women a spiel about how he's like cool with this open marriage situation to like, I don't know what he's a sophisticated modern man. Exactly. He's like, no, I don't want a divorce. I just, I just do whatever, you know? And it's like this weird, like pitch to have sex with him. Uh, (laughs) after his, like his, but his Butler is also comically hovering around, uh, like buzzing around. What does the one character say? Like the kind of Butler who's always tiptoeing backwards. (laughs) And he truly is, like, comically zipping, you know? He's like Sartre's parody of the waiter or whatever. It's like <laughs> unbelievable, the parody of the butler in this case, but same concept, you know? Yeah, that those photographs are, without a doubt, my favorite joke in the film. It is so unbelievably funny because when Catherine Hepburn reveals that fact... Anyhow, I wanted to show you that I can act. You are a faker. Oh, we're both fakers. Isn't faking the essence of acting? Well, it may apply to actors, but it does not apply to me. You, you're a bigger faker than I am. That's libel. Not if I can prove it. Now, this young man's your son, isn't he? Please keep my and family if he is out your of this. Son, he must be a lot older than you are. Because Irish. that photograph has been used to advertise a certain military academy for a great number of years. How do you know? Because my brother went to that academy. And this lady whom you pretend is your wife, She's done a lot of posing for the face powder ads, I believe. My friend, you have just broken up a very, very convenient marriage. And, you know, it is interesting, though, because in a way, he's also kind of, like, broke in the movie because he, at the time, he's had plays, he's had hits, but he's currently not producing anything. And the only reason he gets to produce anything is because the Wheat King funded it dark money style. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting, too, because he is such a faker, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. And he gets a visit from some other, like, shady financier or something, some mm-hmm. some guy that comes to his office. And, and there's, like, even... 
again, talk about like darkness. There's like a dark implication as well that this guy like took care of something for him. I don't know if you picked up on that, but you know, like he thinks that the guy is coming to collect on something that he had him do. And I was like, you know, going like, Hey, this is, you know, this is postcode. Right. But, but there's still this kind of dark, adult yeah. mature implication there that maybe I was thinking, you know, uh, because of his, his penchant for these young starlets that, you know, maybe he got one of them pregnant, you know, uh-huh. and he needed to get right. it fixed somehow. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that's like definitely a, a way to read those encounters. I mean, they're, they're very ruthless with the way he's depicted, especially since it's not cartoonish. Like it feels overwhelmingly real. Um, his villainy throughout the film. And I do think because of that, it's exceptionally satisfying when Catherine Hepburn is constantly cutting through that. Cause he's like really, you know, he calls her at one point a militant. Um, and then like <laughs> later on when, after she's being really abrasive to him, he mentions like, what are you? Some kind of girl scout. And she says, no, I'm just someone with a brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause this guy just, he, I mean, throughout he's so explicitly mentioning the fact that like all, all of these aspiring actresses would be much better suited back in Ohio or Kansas, just like cooking in the kitchen, right? The typical response of the Harvey Weinstein head honcho dude pulling all the strings. But it's that deviousness that runs through every scene he's in um, and his charm attempting to override it that I think creates that incredible tension. And, you know, oddly enough, it's the fact that she stands up to him that makes him that much more uh, smitten with her, right? Uh, yeah. and, and want to now make her an actress. Oh yeah. It's it's that raw, uh, that 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 intense uh, realness that she delivers into his face that she has seen through him. Like it is her perceived intelligence on his part that that makes him suddenly go like, all right, well. I guess she can be an actress, right? She'll be great. And and he sees then his ability to, yes, further sculpt or mold her. Red flag. When a, a theatrical producer is trying to have sex with you on his Art Deco couch and he starts talking about Pygmalion. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Run. <laughs> yeah, run for your life. Oh, my oh, God. <laughs> And yet, sadly, they can't because, you know, this fucker, this Powell, he's the kingmaker, you know, again, like comparing it to Harvey Weinstein is very apt. And I think that anybody who watches this film will see that because, you know, sadly, this guy is like the gatekeeper for all these women. He's literally determining, you know, who starves and who doesn't, you know, in this, uh, you know, the context of the theatrical workforce yeah and the great depression as we mentioned you know i mean like fuck i mean i can't i can't i can't even imagine right things are tough we've got a lot of friends who are actors right now and and especially seeing what they've gone through over the last two years i mean it's been it's been tough it's hard enough when things are are good when you have a strong economy for actors of any kind and then when you when you live in in tight times, you know, and I don't mean T-I-T-E times, no. I mean T-I-G-H-T times, it is that much worse. For Meet Orson Welles doing federal theater. Yeah, well, he, he he went too hard. He went too hard for the old federal theater, you know. But thinking about Powell's red flags, there was like one or two moments of some weird Catherine Hepburn red flags, and I couldn't tell if this was just because she's like supposed to be, you know, the rich girl, but... 
did you guys catch those odd moments where when thinking about like the value of good honest labor and self-determination she was reflecting on the beauty of the settlers of the west just carrying themselves over the rockies like you think that they were deterred by like a little bit of hunger Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the way she frames it i was like oh my god well sure (laughs) i mean that's yeah that's her family you know her family origin story right the wheat king yeah (laughs) as the wheat king but yeah i mean i read that in multiple ways you know i mean like she is she's a rich girl she's probably a republican in the 30s you know uh big business and all that you know she probably hated fdr uh so you could read it as that but i also did learn that maury riskin later became a a crank conservative commentator uh post you know his uh, screenwriting career so maybe it's uh maybe it's him i i think as as i you know with with katherine hepburn's character specifically and i i don't think that her character is meant to be someone that that again like we're supposed to be connecting to the whole time you know we're the ones looking at her going like this fucking chick doesn't have a clue you know like she look at the way she's talking to everybody and yeah her her veiled kind of bootstraps mentality that it's like okay well forget my money it isn't about money it isn't about you know, what family you're born into. It's just about intelligence and hard work. And, like, the game is so fucking rigged, and and she is the only one on a certain level who doesn't think that it is, you know? The other women get it. You have suppers like this all the time? Well, practically all the time. Why? I just wondered. Wish I'd been born lucky instead of beautiful and hungry. Well, you can't have everything. They unfortunately have to deal with the fact that it is rigged, and they know that. And it's also, I think, why, you know, Jean as well, from the get-go, like, looks at her with disdain, you know? And it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm sure you will be successful. Look at all your trunks, you know? Look at all your minks, you know? Like, (laughs) look at all this stuff, and your daddy. That same line, as I mentioned, with, with common people, that... You know, and the bullshit being that at any point in time, this does get too hard for you. Like, you can just walk away from it. But us, like, this is all we have. We're in this. Uh, and, and we have no safety net like you do. So it is all in your eyes, like, fun and games. And, and it is about simply you just showing up and impressing people. But... The realities for everyone else are so much different. Yeah, I think that that's definitely by design. She has so many admirable qualities uh, that cut through a lot of the bullshit that a lot of people are encountering in this film. But some of that comes from the troubling aspects of her upbringing and like just how she presents herself and how she moves through the world. But she definitely then has a reckoning with that aspect of herself once the film reaches one of its climaxes, an extremely haunting sequence where it's opening night for her big show that she is like destined to fail. She has been giving wooden rehearsals. She can't remember her lines. She is like so detached emotionally from the project. And Kay, the actress who originally in the film had passed out from starvation, has not been able to afford the fee that it costs to stay at this hostel. You know, she kind of wishes her a congratulations, but she's really torn up about it. You know, it's clearly a role that she 
truly pined for. It was something she desperately wanted. And she was carrying around that damn script for for the entire movie, you know? Enchanted April. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I honestly thought that the twist in the film would be that Catherine Hepburn just couldn't do it. But that Kay, because she knew all the lines, because she had that script with her the whole time, would come in and save the day and save the show, and she would (laughs) be financially secure. Um, But the film takes an extremely dark turn uh, from my little happy ending that I was expecting. And in this truly terrifying moment, she ascends a staircase when the film suddenly becomes incredibly shadowy in a film that's not typically, you know, full of dense, dark shadows. And then you hear all the women off screen congratulating Catherine Hepburn, encouraging her like, hey, have a great opening night, break a leg, like you're gonna do great. And Kay ascends these stairs with this look in her eyes of just like utter, absolute desperation. And it's not just that, it's uh, the 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 last play she was in, she starts hearing the director and the stage hands. Yeah. Right. Five minutes, Miss Hamilton, please. Five, Five minutes. minutes. Don't, Don't worry, Miss Hamilton. Everything's gonna be fine. Places now. Places, please. Ready, everybody. Ready, Miss Hamilton? Ready. Ready, Hamilton? Ready. I want to ask everybody in the world out there. Everything to worry about. Good luck. And this is all in a long take that starts at the bottom of the stairs and then in classic Hollywood style cranes with her all the way up a staircase as shadows appear on the wall out of nowhere. And then she's just like hearing voices. I mean, this is really like obviously where the film just like goes far and above being a good movie, you know? Like, yeah, kicks it to the next level. It's yeah. a truly shocking, shocking moment and an amazing like piece of filmmaking. Uh, and then off screen, yeah, she uh, jumps out the window. And dies, like doesn't even survive it. I thought like when they said like, oh, she's fallen out the window that that news would be delivered to Catherine Hepburn and she's like, she's in the hospital. Like it's not looking good. No, they specifically say the morgue. (laughs) They say like her broken bodies in the morgue or something. Yeah, because talk about like a radical um, confrontation between roommates. Gene, Ginger Rogers, shows up on opening night to the dressing room to tell Catherine Hepburn minutes Mere minutes before she's about to go on stage, like, Kay just fucking tossed herself out the window and she is dead. Yeah, because you got this part and she didn't, you know. That is some some cold but pretty honest roommate behavior right there. <laughs> Hurtful and helpful. You know, <laughs> as we discover, uh, that that leap is just the push. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn needed to... Yeah, it was just the, the medicine. It's just exactly what the doctor ordered for Catherine Hepburn yeah. and her acting skills. Yeah, because she goes <laughs> out on stage, and she is obviously d- destroyed, you know, by this, this bit of news, you know, as all the women are. They are devastated, and we feel that weight, you know? And she goes out on stage, all feeling. No intellect. She's not even saying the lines. Mm -hmm. 
but god damn it it's a fine performance (laughs) she is stripped bare yeah that's my favorite part where the guy's like, these aren't even the lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I was cracking up because it was just like this, it's this very kind of like Hollywood moment where it's just like everyone's just freaking out. Like, this is the greatest goddamn acting I've ever seen, you know? <laughs> yes, and then you I even like, in, in the middle of the performance, you have like a guy like yell like, get some goddamn press here. Like, this is going to be huge. <laughs> Call the photographers in. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing, like the fervor, which was the newspaper men are like, we got to we got to get the hot story on this. Like this performance is going to shake New York. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. What a world. Yeah. But so she gives a killer performance and she's like devastated. And when like the curtain opens for her to bow, she's on the floor, crumpled up, totally wrecked. Um, and they encourage her to give like one last final speech. Suppose that I should thank you on behalf of the company. And I know that I'm grateful to you for your applause. But I must tell you that I don't deserve it. I'm not responsible for what happened on this stage tonight. The person you should be applauding died a few hours ago. And another bit of just trivia that I actually thought was interesting and an alternate approach to filmmaking that allowed for some realism. When she gave the speech in front of the crowd, the actresses weren't in the room the ones that are like in the hostel because then when we cut and we get reaction shots of them what they had done what Gregory LaCave did was he so he shot the scene with Catherine Hepburn and then he projected her speech for all of those actresses and supposedly their reactions are their you know they knew they were performing but it was also they were so moved by Catherine Hepburn's monologue that they were able to like give themselves into it so effortlessly. Wow. Um, yeah. So just kind of like an interesting little tidbit. We get a little montage action too, don't we? After that, well, isn't there like a it's crazy actually, montage? In, in the most classic Hollywood fashion, we then go to Kay's grave and then we get a zippy <laughs> montage about how Catherine Hepburn's play is a hit. It's in the fourth month, and Terry is the top star of Broadway. I think in the headline, she's referred to as eccentric debutante. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because at this point, everyone is, you know, found out that she's like an heiress, you know. Right. What a bizarre moment, too. That like canted angle shot of the of grave, Kay's grave, and like as the newspapers are like flashing across the screen, and even like to show the passage of time and the different seasons, we have like a man mowing the lawn over <laughs> her grave yeah. in a canted angle, like ascending the frame. Odd touch, really weird. Very, very <laughs> odd touch. That's awesome. There's one more important final note of of it as well, right? Where, you know, we're back in the home and now there is harmony as as uh as all the roommates now seem to have have worked themselves into this this nice rhythm with each other, you know, and and even you know, Ms. Randall has found her place uh um, amongst all these women, her, her roommates, and we get a new 
woman enter at the very end. We get this this new, new, fresh blood, you know, another young aspiring actress enters. And she's now given the spiel about the place that that we had from the beginning. So we see the cycle, you know, of the revolving stage door. Yes. And, and I, the last thought that I had when that was happening was I like looked around the room of, you know, all the other women. And I was like, now who's going to be the one to die to give this woman her shot? You know, I was like, who's, who's next? next? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's a true cycle, if it's the true circle of life here in, in New York city, like who's next? It's a very good point. We should mention, right, that even though Terry has become a star and, first of all, was already rich and now she's even richer, which is a kind of an ironic thing, uh, I think, to happen in this movie, the rich get richer, but she's decided to stay living at the boarding house. So she's, like, committed to, you know, her girlfriends. And it is, you know, I think, like, to me... I think LaCava is deft enough to pull it off because on the one hand, as we were sort of laughing about, you could go, okay, right, this woman had, this woman had to kill herself so uh, <laughs> so she could learn what acting was. That yeah, acting was empathy. Right. You know, she had to right. like have a traumatic experience happen to, to someone else right. so she could become an actress. And like that's a cynical read on it and that's there and that's true. But I do think the movie is like good enough emotionally that like I was moved by uh you know her at the end there you know being one of them like truly if you believe it you know uh beyond all the superficial qualities she had she's you know she's changed and that's beautiful yeah <laughs> yeah well, you know, it's it's a very different vibe, as we said, in the, in the middle of the fucking Pacific, you know? <laughs> One yeah. thing that I was thinking about this time is uh, the, the sort of direct connection to, to Point Blank that I find interesting, which is, you know, very simply, uh, Point Blank opens with Lee Marvin on an island, Alcatraz, and he's sort of like dying and dreaming, uh, and he's also sort of dying and dreaming in this film on an island. And I was like, these are like, it is the spiritual sequel, I think, uh, to Point Blank, especially because uh, I've listened to the the very wonderful Borman Soderbergh commentary uh, where, you know, Borman talks about how for him, Point Blank was about Lee Marvin losing his humanity in the Pacific theater. And that Parker's quest for revenge was Lee's quest to regain his humanity that was stolen from him or whatever. And that's like Borman's personal read on Point Blank, like the way he accessed it, you know, as a film was like, it's all about literally Lee, the person, this war hero and his fucked up mind and yeah. body, you know, because of this. And this film very much an extension of that as well. You oh, know? yeah. He's I mean, just playing himself. <laughs> yeah, and Borman has talked about, you know, he refers to Lee as like a very close friend and that experience of of making that film together and and also how Lee went to bat for him, which yes. I'm sure you know, oh, yeah. you know, that Borman was encountering a lot of issues and Lee stepped in with his star power at the time and, and was like... 
this guy's in charge of everything, right? Yeah, he hoodwinked like all the execs, or not even hoodwinked, he just pulled rank on them and was just like, Borman's got final cut, he's got final say, and like faced down all the execs. Mm-hmm. Like, of course he did, you know? <laughs> so Borman, Borman said, you know, after they, they made point blank, they, they, they wanted to work together again, and, and Lee wanted to work with him again, and uh, Borman said that this project actually was born out of their mutual respect for Toshiro Mifune. That Lee Marvin specifically was oh, like, I, I want to make a movie with this guy. And and Borman said that like they just he and Lee Marvin went to Japan, and he's like, and we just sat down with Toshiro Mifune, and we just drank a lot of sake, and we had a lot of toasts, and then we agreed. To make this movie, I mean, like that's you know, I think the 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 essence of this film really it's 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 Borman, it's Mafune, it's Marvin, and it's Conrad Hall shooting the hell out of it, you know. And I mean, like these two actors, the the they're they're both like jungle cats, constantly prowling around each other, stalking one another, you know. As you mentioned, Ryan, like you know, uh, on top of each other at, at, at just about every single turn and aware of it too, you know? Like, they're constantly seeing each other out of the corner of their eye. Yeah, that story of them meeting definitely tracks. I mean, this film, it makes sense that part of its genesis came from these two men meeting each other and just sizing each other up. Mm-hmm. These dudes that are just so cinematic in their faces and in like their aura (laughs) that they give off to have both of them sit down with a bunch of sake and just like kind of stare each other down i could see there being even if it was silent like a mutual like growing together to be like okay we can make this movie i wouldn't even be surprised if that initial meeting is how the it is in the film where they they weren't (laughs) sure but that they loosened up as the night went on and they learned how to be roommates and how to share their troubles yeah well and they were both uh legendary drinkers so i think that's that's something that certainly helps for them because even if there was a language barrier, barrier and there indeed was, you know, Borman said uh, they loved each other, like on this set, like they were extremely like into one another. But they, he's like, they would just drink, and 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 just talk at each other, you know. And it's it's kind of crazy how that does develop in the film, where you know, as they they start to get past their initial difficulties uh, and mistrust of one another, they're having conversations, they're trying to communicate, and it is like this kind of weird layer of they they can't understand each other's language, but they do get to a point where it's like they can understand what the other guy is basically saying you know what the what what is trying to to be communicated there does come through to them as if they are the only two people who can understand the other i mean we should point out you know this isn't a situation where you have it's basically two guys and then it's bookended by you know other people like no that this is literally the, these are the only two people you will see in this entire film, Lee Marvin mm-hmm. and Toshiro Mifune, the entire time. Yeah, there's a plane at one moment, but you don't even see it. 
it's off screen, <laughs> like when they're out in the water and you hear someone flying overhead. So yeah, it is a it is a deeply isolated experience for the two of them. Borman, as I, as I mentioned in my introduction, like he said, he was a huge fan of silent cinema. He'd made a, a, a documentary for the BBC on silent films. And as I was watching it, I was like, really, I was thinking about that. I was having that guide me. And I really was like, man, you could turn off the sound and you certainly would lose that, that amazing soundscape there that adds so much texture that punctuates so many of their moments. But it is basically like this movie is just the Kuleshov effect over and over and over yeah. again. You know, it's one of them looking at something. It's it's this realization of of what they're looking at and how they how they feel about that thing. You know, at first each other, you know, then water, food, the ocean. I mean, like it it, it all is just so, in my eyes, cinematic. Well, it's got an atmosphere worthy of Kurosawa as well, because whether it's natural or they, you know, they got some some water out there or whatever, there are epic rainstorms, and and yeah, it really does uh, become this kind of yeah, like po- you know, Borman, you know, uh, he'll get poetic, he'll get weird, you know, and he plays with the smoke of when Mifune is like trying to smoke out Lee Marvin at the beginning of the movie. And yeah, quite literally, literally setting all these fires. Um, that shit is like amazing. And all the smoke coming through the trees. I mean, I wrote in here, uh, Terrence Malick guilty, uh, because Borman shoots the smoke through the trees at the sun, like tree of life, you know? <laughs> oh man. And so much, I mean like the, the thin red line, you know, just yes. playing with the idea of like the jungle as nature and as violence. And, and, you know, there's like the line where, in the thin red line, uh, Nick Nolte like points to the to the jungle when he's talking to Staros and is like, "Look at all these vines here trying to swallow everything up," you know. And it's like <laughs> that that's exactly the same approach here. Whether it's Lee Marvin like laying in a pile of mud or <laughs> just getting at a certain point like that's such a great moment when he's got when he's like caked in mud. I mean, and that really is you know if there are like beats of this movie, uh, there's you know there's a moment when Mifune is chasing Marvin through the jungle and he comes upon him face down in muck straight (laughs) up and Lee Marvin rolls over and there's just this extreme close-up of his face caked in mud but you can see like the piercing Lee Marvin eyes through the mud and at Mm -hmm. that moment Mifune decides not to kill him he just well then he ties him up but like I think that's the sort of vibe I get from it is like that's the moment when murder became like off the table and he was just looking at this pathetic man caked in mud lying on his back in the rain in the jungle you know and I think the way you put it is exactly what's going on there it's it's that you know a lot of times when people talk about war right and, and again if you almost think of war as performance how you have to like teach a soldier to fill a role, you know, there's a, there's a, a, an emphasis made between the difference in killing and murdering. In war, we kill, we don't murder, right? But, but as you've described this moment, that's it. When he looks down at him, he realizes this wouldn't be killing. This would be a murder. Like I would murder this, 
helpless yeah. man. He sees right him here. as a man and not as a, a Yankee soldier. You yeah. Know, at that moment. Mm-hmm. And we should point out that, you know, for those who are questioning, like, well, why weren't they just trying to kill each other? Like, I mean, well, they, they, they sort of work up to that. But, but at least initially, like, there is this amazing moment in the film where they are both on the beach. They both have a weapon. Samurai showdown. They're looking at each other <laughs> and Borman does this brilliant thing where he, he gives each of them yeah. a, a like flash in their mind of them trying to kill the other one, but getting killed themselves. Like they each kind of envision their own death and they are both like, oh, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to risk it. Like <laughs> they're cowards too. I mean, like that's a, a huge point that, that he establishes right off the bat is that these men are both also cowards, you know, that they, you know, they aren't bloodthirsty warriors. They're kind of like, oh shit. Like, I don't want to die. Like I could die. You know, I'm, they don't see themselves like, yeah, I can kill this fucking guy. They think their first thought is I'm going to get killed if I try to do anything and they back off. It just becomes these sort of like these petty, passive, aggressive attacks on one another that eventually do get to that point where they, they both launch themselves through the jungle. And then they go through the whole, uh, you know, Mifune ties up Lee Marvin. And then after like, you know, five to 10 minutes, it gets flipped. And, uh, you know, what does he say? It's it's beautiful. When he, when he gets the drop then on Mifune and ties him up, just says, win some, lose some, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like back and forth, <laughs> the cycles. But I do want to bring up, you know, one of my favorite moments in the movie is, is after the role reversal, uh, Lee Marvin pulls out the military field guide uh, because he like doesn't know how to cook. Basically, yeah. does not uh, do anything. Which doesn't he doesn't know how to do anything, <laughs> which is yeah, a very definitely. funny in contrast to Mifune who seemingly knows how to do anything. Yeah, he, he's very self-reliant. He's cooking, he's building things, he's always, like, being industrious in his self-preservation. And Marvin's just got the... He's reading the manual out loud. Let's see now. Gourmet's Guide. The wild form of the water chestnuts. It is often found in reference uh, figure 33. Well, what's enough of that, right? personnel and unfriendly natives. A man fighting for survival in the jungle is in no position to maintain prisoners of war. Destroy them if they are captured immediately. And that that's the moment when when Marvin uh, after having Mifune ties up like he cracks because he's trying to cook his dinner and he like he sucks at it he fucks up he like spills his food you know and he just snaps and he gets up and he goes over to Mufune with the knife and Mufune's thinking like Jesus Christ he's gonna kill me and that's when he cuts him loose and is like all right you're better at this than me Start cooking, right? I think that's more or less what he says. Like, you do the I, well, fucking I think cooking. Spe- yeah, specifically, he mentions the line, like, you do your share. 
And I was like, give me a break, dude. He's tied like, up. Yeah, yeah, he's tied up. And then also it's like Mifune was totally self-reliant. He could handle all this shit on his own, like do his share. Like you just need him to mother you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's just like this deadbeat American husband in that <laughs> yeah. moment. Just like, God damn it, woman, I can't do all this shit. Like absolutely. that's totally the vibe. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's yeah. like, it's those moments where, where which is why like I, I loved picking this movie for for, for this topic, uh, because, you know, I was thinking about situations where I've had with roommates and, and you have that, that petty bickering, you know, that initial difficult start, but you can get to that point of, you know, uh, of harmony, of, of balance, of symbiosis. And, and I, I just love the way the film explores that because as much as this is a movie about men at war, it's just also about humans on the planet together, humans in, in shared spaces, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. It's really a movie about a couple more than anything, about <laughs> sure. the difficulties of a relationship. Yeah, it's like they eventually become brothers as it goes on. Like, I love when the film transitions to them working together on the raft and they become, like, bamboo brothers where they, like, help each other farm for bamboo, set it all up, and they, like, bicker about how the raft should be designed Dude, and the yeah, goals of, like, theory. breaking through the reef. Yeah, all of that stuff. That stuff's really good. And I like as that camaraderie builds, there's an interesting moment of, like, cautious trust between the two of them around a campfire where Mifune has been, like, sharpening a pair of knives and he leaves one at Lee Marvin's side as, like, a sign of trust. Like, you can have one of these knives both for our tasks making this raft and self-preservation. And when he goes and sits down... Like, in the background of the frame, so Lee Marvin's foregrounded, the fire, a log, shifts and, like, crackles a bit and sparks fly. And it's in that moment they both kind of jump because neither of them were looking at each other. Mm -hmm. And so there is trust there, but there is also that extreme tension of we've been at each other's throats for most of our roommate experience and now you just gave me a knife well that's Um, that's the thing i mean like you 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 say like they become brothers and i'm like i I don't think they become brothers i think that they become roommates i think they become sure (laughs) i think they become people who can coexist you know but that there's still there is still this one like layer that separates them and that's an amazing moment you described ryan and it's like it comes right after the completion of the raft. So that's what adds also to the tension. The idea that we had to work together to get this thing built, but is he now just going to stab me and take the raft on his own, you know? And and again, wordless, you know, that we're able Mm -hmm. to pick up on all those subtleties and that emotion, the, the paranoia, the fears, in, in something so wordless that yes, the shifting of a log can suddenly sound like a gunshot going off through the air. I just want to point out that Mifune is playing a flute that he fashioned as well during that scene. Out of the bamboo, yeah. Yeah, I wish there was a sequence when they're seafaring of, of Mifune like doing a full song uh, to, to calm Lee Marvin's nerves as the, the waves were getting tough. Lee's the one who gives them the song that calms their nerves. That's, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. We, do, that's right. we do get a little little bit of Lee Marvin singing in this film. So Down in the cane break close by the mill There lived a colored girl And her name was Nancy Dill 
I told her that I loved her, I loved her mighty fine. And if she would come with me, I soon would make her mine. Come along, come, won't you come along with me? And I'll take you down to Tennessee. Come it's along, all, you know, it's always musical time with Lee with when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's that's really then where the, the film, you know, it opens up and we start to see the, the kind of, like, hopeful aspect here of, like, well, look, we don't have to love each other. We don't have to be friends, right? But But we're all better off together, you know? And they go through that incredibly harrowing voyage together uh, that, that, also shows their their care for one another like it, it it develops even further from from this sort of like uh acceptance or you know a reluctant kind of partnership because on that voyage that's like incredibly like long and and hard on them there's like some really touching little moments where like at a certain point uh, Mafune is like passed out in the sun and his back is starting to get burned and Lee Marvin gets up and like covers him with a coat. He starts to care for him and we see Mifune also uh, returning that favor. And I think it really builds to to a head then when they when they do reach land, you know? And that's where where their their care for one another I think like reaches its climax. That's such a beautiful moment. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, the whole raft sequence I think is is incredible I mean it must have been so difficult to film and uh, it's very impressive to me you know uh, how legible it is how good it is and and yeah it's really you know Connie Hall going off like especially right before it transitions you know into them finding land like there's these like you know Shots from so high up and everything is orange at Magic Hour. Like, they're, I mean, it's an unbelievable looking movie that really is attuned to the emotion of these guys, you know? Uh, and Borman and, said, you know, and I didn't know this, but Borman's like, well, Conrad Hall was the perfect guy to shoot this because Conrad Hall was born in Tahiti. <laughs> I had no idea. And, and Conrad Hall was like, this man knows the light of the South Pacific. Like, holy shit. Yeah. And he's like, you know, he's like, Conrad Hall, he's like, I would set up shots. And then Conrad Hall, you know, the brilliance of what he did Borman said was that I would I would set up a shot they had elaborate storyboards and then he's like and then Conrad Hall would just change it (laughs) he he said just like make an adjustment and it was perfect and yeah it's it's a great adventure out there on on the sea but eventually land ho and they find a little chain of islands uh and uh and check them out yeah and this is like really where you know you start to if you've been paying attention to what this movie is about, you know, this is like that point where you start to go like, oh God, well, what happens when they get back to civilization? Like, you know, can this this peace between the two of them last? And they come across not just land, but but a military complex. And again, this beautiful moment between the two of them, each of them wants to protect the other one if it's like their base, right. you know, both of them are like, whoa, 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 let me go first and let me like make sure it's safe for you. Like the sense that I don't want you to die here over this, you know? Cause they see it's a Japanese base and then 
you know, Mifune's, you know, going like, Japanese soldiers don't shoot or whatever. And then Lee in the, like, dirt sees, like, a U.S. Army, uh, you know, insignia or whatever. Yeah. And then so he comes running out. But this is hell in the Pacific, so there's not a goddamn person on <laughs> no. this island. It's just the this base wrecked base. Is, yeah, is wrecked. It's all bombed out. And uh, then they they move in together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally. <laughs> I mean, they've, they've been roommates on the beach. They've been roommates on the raft. And now it's time for them to be roommates in the bombed out military complex. And I like how they're, you know, at this point, they're so scruffy. They're really overgrown. They've got big beards. And they're kind of, you know, rough and tough bachelors throughout most of their roommate experience. But they decide, you know, as they finally set up shop in four walls and, you know, try really settle in, they might as well make themselves look nice and have, like, a pleasant evening together. Um so they do shave and they both clean up quite well. It's it's amazing because, I mean, they must have just found other razors or something, but it's a funny gag where they've got like all nearly rusty scissors that they find in a big like scrap pile in this hospital and they start like chipping away at their beards. And then in the next cut, it is the closest shave you could possibly imagine. <laughs> oh, they look like unbelievably clean. I felt like I could smell their cologne. Yeah, they look like they went to a spa, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. It's so jarring. And they're both so handsome oh, and like glistening so in that moment. And like, tan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've been out in the water, you know? And they've got a big, big jug of sake. Oh, yeah. They- that they share between the two of them. And unfortunately, life intervenes. And by that, I mean a copy of Life magazine. That's right. And that's where everything really starts to go go bad. There's also like a moment of tenderness just before that that I actually enjoyed having the subtitles for because Lee Marvin, when he gets up, he bumps into the rig that Mifune has set up to heat up the sake and he knocks it over and spills a bunch of sake on the ground. And when Mifune tempers the situation, which I guess would still be communicated without subtitles, he says like, no, no, like, no need to worry. We like still have plenty of sake. Like it's okay, man. Well, I think there's actually even more going on there um, because I rewatched that that encounter several times, and Lee Marvin spills that on purpose, dumps it on him on purpose. Uh, at that point, uh, mm. you know, already there's there's cracks that are starting to show, like, and all those emblems of the real world come back, you know, the, the signs that the American army was there, the, being on a Japanese base, seeing each other's faces for the first time, like without these beards, putting on their uniforms of their, 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 their matching countries, cracks start to, to, to break in this show up in this relationship. And like Marvin his character's getting annoyed by the song. Yes. The Japanese song. Mifune starts singing like this sentimental Japanese like drinking song or something, but he's like annoyed by that song. And so he makes it look like an accident, but he dumps that on purpose to get him to stop singing that song. And they start chipping away at each other. And this eventually then leads to Lee Marvin being like, Wait a second. Somebody told me you guys don't believe in God. You know, it's oh, like yeah, I forgot it all about just that. starts to go to <laughs> shit. Like now the 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 petty 
sniping starts in again. Uh, they, they start chipping away at each other. They're, they're no longer men who are trying to survive. They have survived. They've gotten through their ordeal. As far as they're both concerned, they're home free now. And eventually they're going to be back with their military units or wherever. You know, they're not going to live together. That wasn't their goal, right? Their goal was was getting off of that little shithole. And while this is happening, speaking of the amazing soundscape of this film, the sound of bombs falling are like in the background Mm -hmm. which at first sounds like thunder yeah but it builds to the point where it's like this is some fucking this is an artillery barrage again like the real the realities of oh wait shit yeah we are even though they're probably not literally hearing it right it's just kind of like a Mormon subjective flourish right well well is something actually being bombed Considering the the original ending of the movie, there's two endings. I don't know which ending you guys watched. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's two endings. I've seen them both, but I don't remember. Yeah. Well, which one did you watch? We watched the one where they just go their separate ways, and right. it fades to black. The, uh, there's another ending where they get bombed out. Right. That's why I was confused. <laughs> His original ending is that one where they, they, you know, they realize like, yeah, you are my enemy. Fuck you. We aren't going to go like shack up together for the rest of our lives. And they put on their uniforms and they go their separate ways. That was Borman's original ending. But he said that the producers were like, this ending sucks. And so the producers then created this horrible ending where in the midst of this, like where you're hearing that bombing and these two are kind of just like arguing about whether or not Japanese people believe in God, you know, from Lee Marvin's perspective, just the, the bunkhouse that they're in just explodes. Right. So like the idea is like an errant shell from that artillery barrage hit them, which really, again, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, yeah, dumb, meaningless ending if it was that. Yeah. Borman hated it. But in America, in England, that ending is the one that that showed and i think partly it's why the film was such a financial failure in america uh because that ending is horrible and on a certain level it fits into a kind of anti-war premise but his original ending also fits in the anti-war premise that's just some like 68 like let's be shocking we need a really bleak ending here let's blow them up i mean it's it's nonsense i guess sometimes the only way a roommate confrontation could end uh definitively would be through an actual bombing so i guess maybe in that spirit sometimes it's just like an irreconcilable differences between roommates like you might as well just bomb the, the apartment sure but but really like his original ending is it does for me fully complete the the journey yeah, of the roommates they break apart yeah eventually, you just eventually go your separate ways yeah. and that time that you live together was very much like this film, you know, of initial distrust, uh, annoyance with one another, petty grievances over stuff, shit, territory, uh, uh, an eventual sort of like, yeah, I guess we gotta live together. What are we gonna do? Murder each other in this apartment or whatever? <laughs> and that, yeah, you you finally one day, you get girlfriends, you get wives, you just simply get your own space, you just, you move on. And some of those roommates you don't stay friends with either. You know, you just, I just lived with that guy for a year. I survived with that guy for a year. You know? 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, so we've all certainly gone our our separate ways from from many a roommate. Marsh, are there any roommate films that really speak to you and uh, your experiences as a, a roommate yourself? <laughs> I'm not so I'm not so sure that it speaks to my uh, personal experiences, but a, a film that I quite like that I think is. Uh, one of the all-time great roommates movies is Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, which ah, yeah. is a movie I've always loved. It was a, a big influence on me when I was younger. And uh, yeah, it's one of the ultimate sort of like dead time films where you're just sort of hanging out. And in this case, it's... Uh, John Lurie, Richard Edson, and uh, the Hungarian cousin that comes to town to New York. And then they go on a road trip to Cleveland and then to Florida. And they're, I would describe it as a sort of roving roommates movie where they're all sort of just stuck together for no reason. And uh, they hang out, they fight, they get involved in a drug deal. You know, they watch television in Cleveland. What more do you want from a movie? Absolutely. Yeah, nothing else I want more. Uh, I'm happy with <laughs> with that one as it is. But I guess you know, let's uh, let's see what we can find some more joy in some other films. Andy, what is the uh, topic for next week? You're up. Well, um, you know, I like to sometimes go to the news, <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people lately have been feeling uh, very let down by. Uh, by their uh, representatives on on almost every level uh, in our in our fair country. So why not lean into it? And uh, you know, if we can't laugh at it, we'll probably all just lose our fucking minds. So bring me movies about the worst kind of elected officials you can you can imagine. So let's have some. Uh, let's just really like lean into. To bad representation <laughs> in uh, in government offices. So, yeah, bring me something like that. Sounds great. I'll cast my vote. I I'll do worse than that. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Is it against the rules of the house to discuss the classics? Oh, go right ahead. I won't take my sleeping pill tonight. It might interest you girls to know that all great actresses knew their Shakespeare. How about their onions? I fail to see what onions have to do with Shakespeare. If you'd listen to Miss Randall, you might learn something. I like Amos and Andy. In my day, we were not only actresses, we were technicians. We learned our trade from the ground up. That's what we should have. A trade. I want to be a Swiss bell ringer. I want to do something with my hands. Sit on them. You'd get further with your feet, they're bigger. The trouble with you is you're all trying to be comics. Don't you ever take anything seriously? After you've sat around for a year trying to get a job, you won't take anything seriously either.